Today is the day to wake, work, and win. Welcome to The Standard. Yeah, man. So I heard, uh, found out about your guys' Facebook group, uh, which is First Responder Financial Freedom, on the Bigger Pockets podcast. I've recently got into some real estate investing and found out about you guys. It's been terrific content. So tell us kind of how you got in the fire service and more importantly, what drove you to get interested in, you know, finding some other like revenue streams? Yeah. So the fire service, I was too smart to be a Marine and I was not smart enough to be a doctor. So I figured the fire department would be the perfect place to start. Um, now all, all jokes aside, my grandfather was the founder of one of the local firehouses just outside of DC. I've got his old tin helmet still sitting on my wall and I scored really well on the test, which is a surprise because I'm not the brightest person in the room. And they hired me and uh, I've been there for, for 17 years in DC or just 17 and a half. Um, before that I was a volunteer out in Maryland. I made some great contacts out here. I've learned a whole lot of stuff. But for the real estate stuff, uh, the biggest thing was I wanted a place where I could call home. I bought my first single family when I was about 22 or 23 years old with the intent of flipping it. And then the market crashed and I got stuck with it and had to recalculate my plans for how to invest and what to do. So it started a, a springboard effect of, of where to go with the investing because it's not just a, it's a single facet. Real estate is multifaceted. There's so many directions you can go with it. So that's why I'm I'm happy to teach the stuff to help guys out to give themselves a better opportunity in life. When I first got in the fire service, I thought that the city, the municipality that I worked for was going to take care of me and they cared about me as much as, you know, my officers do. Over the last few years, I've realized that, you know, it's a very naive way of looking at our job. You know, the cities we work for, they see us as liabilities, you know, assets are things that make us money. Liabilities are things that take it away. So they see us as liabilities even though we feel like we're doing such a great service, you know, we are public servants at the end of the day. You know, we are, we don't bring in any revenue to our towns. I mean, even the police department brings in some revenues with tickets and, and things like that. So we don't really bring anything to the table for our cities. So if we were to get hurt or, you know, I've known quite a few people who've gone out uh, with cancer issues, the city will fight that. To the death and you kind of had an experience like that i did so i'll give you a little backstory we had a battalion chief I'm, I'm very fond of um he had cancer and when i was doing the training for the recruits they're like hey would you interest be interested in training them i'm not gonna call him out by name but i was like yeah absolutely I, you know the guy's got a great reputation so um when we sat down he's like your career is not based upon who you work for it's about the contacts you make and the relationships you have he goes if you get hurt they will chew you up and spit you out so we got him back to full duty from a bad bout with cancer. And then he retired as soon as he went back to full duty because they were actually trying to take his pension and his retirement. So his wife wouldn't be taken care of after he passed away. So we got him back to full duty. He retired. His wife got his pension and he died six months later. And that was a big eye opener to me as to how the city sees you. You are a butt in the seat. You are a person just responding to calls like your qualifications are great for conversation purposes and as growth as a person, as a character but they don't see it that way. They see you, like you said, as a liability. But for me, I got hurt in a house fire. It was a, uh, it was a torture, murder, arson fire at a mansion in DC. And I went through part of the floor and I rolled my ankle. And just like most athletes, like you pop up and you're like, okay, can I walk on it? I'm like, yeah, I'll walk it off. I'll be fine. 
and I kept working on it, kept working on it, kept working on it. And later on, when I was throwing some hose in the hose bed, my ankle just popped. I felt like I got like kicked in the ankle or shot in the ankle. And I went down to the ground and my ankle had actually all the ligaments in my ankle had ruptured. So for six months, DC told me that was a sprain. And I was doing like, you know, balancing stuff on BOSU balls and 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 climbing upstairs, hopping on one foot. They're like, it's just a sprain, like you're not showing enough pain. So a couple months go by, they send me for an MRI or a scan. And um, they're like, oh, you know, you have um, chipped pieces of bone where the ligaments tore off. All your ligaments are detached. You have some uh, damaged cartilage in there. So they tried to retire me after that. So we get our first offering for retirement at six months. They kind of threaten you to, they're going to get rid of you. So a couple months later, they put me in for retirement before I was even healed from surgery. So um, the way our retirement works, it's not like a lot of other places. We get a percentage of a percentage. At the time, I would have walked away with $18,000 a year. And for every dollar over the 18000 that you make somewhere else, they take 50 cents off of the dollar, if I remember correctly. So if I sold one house or if I made one deal, it would have wiped out my entire benefit package. Oh. That has since changed, though. So we, we're in a better position now. Our union did a good job fighting for what we have now. Um, we've got a bunch of guys going off on injury and, and other things that were not diagnosed properly. But that's a whole other podcast. So I'm not I'm trying to say this nicely. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think it's the city's fault. I truly think they're just trying to do their their due diligence to make sure that everything gets funded in the city. And But that being said, we need to take care of ourselves. And if you think that, like I did, that I'm going to rely on my pension, which may or may not be there. You know, I, I got some great friends in Illinois, and that pension system's a disaster. They might not have a pension by the time they retire. So what do most people do? They're going to put their money into the stock market index funds, 457s, Roth IRAs. There's a whole, you know, bevy of issues with that as well. You know, not, that's better than nothing for sure. But why do you think that real estate is, is an asset class that is worth putting your time into? So I've looked at a lot of different moving parts and where you can make money. And I'm a blue collar guy. Like I grew up in a blue collar family. I like to work with my hands. I like tangible items and assets. Stock market to me makes me nervous. Do I have money in it? Yes. But anytime that a famous person can say something about a stock market and have an impact where it costs people hundreds of thousands of dollars, it makes me anxious. Whereas a fixed asset like real estate, you know what you're getting into, the condition of the property, the clientele you're going to be providing a service to, which is housing, if you're not flipping it, if you're making it a rental. But you just have to have an idea of you know what the future looks for this and have all the numbers lined out. So you're hedging your bet by diminishing the amount of um, risk you'll take by knowing what you're getting into. And that's one of the things I try to teach guys is you got to know what you know, the animal that you're going to be getting in bed with, not the one you don't, or know the devil that you're getting in bed with, not the one you don't. So for me, real estate, I can work on myself. I can hire stuff out. I have an idea for numbers, what things cost. So when I teach guys this, it's to me, the biggest thing is just knowing what you're getting into and where you're getting into it. If you are listening to this and first of all, our suggestion would be to find something that interests you that you can make money at on the side. I mean, we, I, I don't know about you, but we work 10 days a month and we have time on the side that we can, you know, have a, have a side hustle going to set us up for, you know, later in life. And you got started really early, actually. I mean, you were tw what, in your early twenties when you bought your first place. Yeah. Like 22, 23, something like that. Did you have like, a, a mentor that, 
was like, Hey, you need to get it. I mean, when I was 21, I certainly wasn't thinking about real estate investing. No, I didn't. So we, my parents had a, um, a house outside of DC when I was a kid and it was a rental property. And when my grandparents passed away, we moved into their house. So I saw when I was younger, I was like, okay, you know, you buy a property and they give you money to stay there. That, that makes sense. Like, that's cool. So then when I was in my twenties, I was like, well, let me, this is before the, the, uh, the bubble burst of 2008. I was like, okay, so I'm going to flip it like everybody else does. I just got, I was the guy that got uh, caught with my pants down because the market crashed in my holding period. At the top of the market, the house I bought, I bought it for 253. I remember these numbers like they were burned into my brain. At the top of the market, it was worth 389. I bought it for 253, and a house across the street from me sold at auction for 110. So I was like, man. And that's not what the market value was. It just went with the auction for. So we'll say even if it went to 150,000, 180,000, like I'm underwater, 70, 80, 100 thousand dollars, and it's it was intimidating. But I bought specifically near a college, which is University of Maryland, and near the metro, which was about a quarter mile away from my house. So I knew I could run it if worst case scenario. So that's what I did is I made the rooms rental rooms. I did some short term stuff in the basement and uh, I didn't like that. Not when I was living there. And um, I just reallocated or revisited my game plan and made it work for me. So I basically lived in my early 20s for free because my renters in the rooms were were paying my mortgage for me. I think they call it house hacking now. But um, if most people in their 20s have a, have renters anyways or roommates, so why not just have them pay you? So I'm a big proponent of house hacking if they're going to pay your mortgage for you. So I got a very similar story. So I bought my first house when I was actually 18. I had it built, moved in 19. And ever since then, I mean, we're talking 20 or more years now, I've never lost on real estate. So that's where, you know, if I'm going to put my money somewhere, for me, real estate's always done very well. And so I've, I've, I've gotten that, that good feedback loop, if you want to say. But one thing, same same story actually, uh, went into college after I bought my first house and did the same thing you're talking about. So bought a house and had roommates and they paid for it. So it's like, it's it's just good financial planning. You learn a little bit about how you can leverage other people's money to make your things work for you, you know? So that's, I'm, I'm right there with you. But I, what I want to know a little bit more about is how much does your ability to do things on the side like this, like financially be responsible, how much has that affected the way you make decisions when you're on the job as a firefighter? Because for me, oh. it's helped me, I guess, make uh, the right decisions. And when I say right decisions, I just mean like the ones that maybe are morally, ethically right and they aren't persuaded by you know, fear of losing your job or fear of losing your position. It's just like, what's right is right. And I'm going to make this decision stand by it. And my bosses or the city is not going to hold anything over my head because you know what, if they feel like what I'm doing is not right, fine. We'll just part our ways. And I'm good with that. I can put my head on the pillow at night and sleep. Well, you know, for you, how, how much of your success outside of the fire service with investing has helped you you know, stay true to yourself on the job. So I think uh, a moral compass is kind of what I would, I would, I would say is a good driving factor for you, I, and a lot of guys, you got to kind of know what's, what's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. So if you ever look at my Facebook page, you'll see there's, I live life by, and now I sound like a fast and furious logo. Um, first do what's right. Then you do what is uh, what you need. And then lastly, do what you want, but only in that order. 
because if you do that order, you're always going to have a good moral compass heading in the right direction. Um, when you make decisions in the fire department, like a lot of them are split second decisions. So if you always go to what's going to be the right decision right now, not what do I want to do in this situation? If you carry that over to the rest of your, your life, then it'll give, keep you on a good, healthy path. Me personally, I think there's just five pillars of life and expenses that you need to you know focus on your mental, spiritual, physical, emotional, and sexual. And all those fall into that, do what's right, and then do what you need and do what you want after that. Because if you let the wrong things lead you, which is your desires, then you'll have bad outcome. And if you run your career, you know, with bad decisions, then you're either going to get fired or, you know, make the news, which Lord knows we don't want to make the news any more than we already do. So that's kind of, the real estate's the same way. It's just uh, figure out what you what's the right move to make for people and yourself. I think I see that mostly when people promote. I think that's why we have so many shitty officers. Because <laughs> honestly, they're like, listen, and I'll just use my my example uh, or my life right now, not my example of an officer. I'm his officer. So now he's going <laughs> to tell everybody how shitty I am. Here's a rabbit hole going down. Oh, man. So uh, I have a, a two-week-old and a two-year-old. And before I had kids, I was like, we're doing great. We're crushing. We can go on all the trips we want. We can, but then you add some more family members into the mix and you need to make a little bit more money. And in our job, it's not like we can go out and sell more widgets and make more money. You have two options. You can promote or you can have more overtime, at least for us. Sometimes there are departments that like, it's super hard to get overtime. So I'm just using uh, my example. So I don't want to promote. I don't think that I'm ready to be an officer. I want to stay in the back seat. I'm, I'm really enjoying where I'm at right now. So if I need an extra $20,000 a year, I'm forced to promote when I'm not ready just for the money. You can't get back in the back seat after you go up. So this is just another avenue to be able to say, hey, I need more income. I'm going to do the right thing, which is stay in the back seat where I belong. And I can still provide for my family. And I'm not working because I made this mistake too. I'm just going to work as much overtime as humanly possible. And then my home life is an absolute dumpster fire. And now I'm a total slug at work. So I kind of like what you said about putting those priorities in order. And this is an option for people that need to make a little bit more money. The other option is make sure you don't put yourself in a, a bad financial spot by buying a bunch of liabilities like a brand new trucks and you know, getting into some super expensive hobbies. What would you say would be like a way that someone could get started in this? Let me touch on a couple of things. Sure. Um, and I'll lead into it because I can go on an entire spiel about this. So you see a lot of the young guys. And I had a conversation with one of the young guys. He got hired. And they always go out and buy a new truck or a new car. Like you, it's just like the military when you got a boot camp. They either get a new wife or a new car. So I tell these guys, I'm like, make a decision that's going to benefit you in, in your life. But you also have to look at the quality of your life. So you have to weigh one with the other. Is it quality of life or is it uh, a financially beneficial move for yourself? So when you look at these things, you basically have five pillars that you spend money on in your life. And it's your mortgage or your rent, wherever your home is, the vehicles you're, you're using, which is your loan, your fuel, your insurance, the type of car you drive, uh, your borrowed debt, which can be your credit cards or your school loans. Eventually, if, you know, if you're blessed or want them, your children, and you can even use those as a tax write-off nowadays, and your food. If you can manage those five pillars in your life, then you can control your financial success. 
But the people who are going out and buying, and I got friends with Lamborghinis and Ferraris and stuff like that, and I, I bust their balls all the time because I'm like, that's a terrible decision. Like, why do you need that? But for them, it's a quality of life. So if it makes sense for them to make their quality of life better, then go for it, as long as it doesn't affect the rest of their life. Like, do you see people going out and getting a, a loan for, you know, hookers and blow or whatever you're spending the stupid money on? And that's what we're trying to avoid is, like, make smart decisions with your money. Like, don't go spend $100,000 and put it all on black and hope that it works out in your favor and have a story to tell your grandkids because then you might not be able to live that long because you don't have the money to, to afford it. So that's the first financially responsible thing that people should look at as those five pillars. Your place you live, your vehicle, your borrowed debt, your children, and the food. Like, if you can manage those, you'll be in a good good position. Now that moving forward, I also own a woodworking company. It's like I do a, and I don't promote it a lot because I still enjoy it and I don't want to grow it to something that I have to do because I still enjoy it. Once you're forced to do something, you don't want to. Don't say uh, it on here because we have uh, 10 listeners and they're all going <laughs> to buy your stuff. No, I, I actually don't ship just for that reason <laughs> uh, because I get asked to do custom stuff all the time and I don't, I don't have the time or the patience to do it. So I'm very pick about what I do and I do what I want when I want um, because I still enjoy it. But I can make some months I make more money on woodwork than I do in real estate or the fire department. So you got to know what you're spending your time. And like if, if you make a job out of it, then it becomes a stressor. But if you still enjoy it, you can still make some money off of it and keep it where it's at. You just got to manage your uh, your time and your, your energy going into it. Um, and figure out which direction you want to go with it. Like there's everybody's different. Like if you want to be a personal trainer, you can pick and choose the people you want to work with and great. But if you're a personal trainer and like you're thrown in a gym and working with people who are unmotivated, then you lose your motivation too. So just if you have a side hustle to make sure it's something you enjoy and don't turn into something you don't. Kind of what I gathered from that was be in control of your liabilities and then acquire assets to pay for your liabilities. So yes. like our jobs are not, and this, I could be wrong because I'm an idiot but our jobs are not assets. We are trading our time and our bodies and our minds for money. An asset yes. would be something that, you know, is set up to bring in X amount of dollars a month. That's what you purchase liabilities with. So if you want that awesome car and it's $1,200 a month, you know, you need to find an asset that is going to get you $1,200 a month prior to you buying that thing. Is that kind of what you're you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk about different. Um, I'm making notes as we talk. We'll talk about different investment strategies. So I talked as we said earlier about, you know, stocks. Stocks is just not my jam. I don't want to do something where I, I can't control and I don't I can't hedge my my potential losses. So for me, stocks is not fun. Like I don't enjoy it. Whereas real estate, I enjoy. I know a guy who rents cars out, um, so he buys all these fancy, you know, G wagons and things. I, I have no idea what they are, and rents them out and has tax write-offs. Um, he rents them through, I think it was Toro, um, and that's his jam. Like he enjoys doing that. He's a car fanatic. Um, for me, it's real estate, and the reason for me is it's a it's an asset you can make money off of multiple ways, and it's not just buying a house and selling a house or a condo or a townhouse or whatever. You can actually leverage up to do bigger things like apartment buildings or offices. You can create your own wealth out of it. You can use that asset to make money off. You can do refinances and, and HELOCs on properties to take the money and put it into something else. We can touch on numbers real quick. We think the numbers is the biggest thing that guys don't know, so they don't pull the trigger. So if you guys don't mind me running into numbers for a minute, I think it'll be a, a benefit that most people just don't understand. Yeah, I, what I want to get across with this whole thing is that we're all capable of doing this. This is not something Absolutely. that you need, you know, 
all these special skills at. It just takes time. It's another trade. It's, it's, it's just like the fire service where it's going to take five or plus years to really get this thing down. I think people are, are just afraid to jump into that. I also want to preface this with, I don't think that you should be doing this on your first few years on the job. I think you should get to learn one craft first, but those people who are, you know, a little farther in their career, they can dig a little deeper into what you're about to talk about. Yeah. So the motivation is the biggest thing. Like a lot of guys. So here's how I, here's how I equate buying a property. It's just like losing your virginity. So the first time you have sex, you're, you're excited, you're intimidated, you're scared. It, it's done. And then it's like, Speak what happened? Yourself, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe I was a shy kid. Um, <laughs> But it's it's a uh, it's it's a experience like you only get it one time, and then when it happens, you're like, okay, I did it. Like, can I do it again? So the same thing for shooting a gun. You know, the first time you're like, oh my god, how do I hold this? Am I holding it right? Am I gonna hit the target? And then you shoot it and you send a bullet downrange, and it's like, okay, this isn't bad. Like, this is kind of cool. Like, I can do this again. So you just you, it's a a learned process, and there's a lot of multi moving parts in the process of a real estate investment. For me, the biggest thing is what's your motivation? Like if you're a poor person and you want to make some money or have a place to live, like you're motivated to do better or you should be motivated to do better because you want to live your best life. So for me, it's it's creating wealth separately from your in the butt seat. So the in the butt seat, your butt in the seat mentality is what are you paid per hour? And that's what you're worth per hour. And to me, that's that's a very narrow minded mindset. It's uh, you should be you should try to live your best life, as I was saying before. So, like, as a as a firefighter, I started at thirty. It was like thirty one thousand dollars a year in DC, and I was like, okay, so my butt in the seat is worth thirty one thousand dollars a year. And I got out of that mentality later on. I was like, okay, well, I can buy other investments, and that investment makes money or it appreciates in value. So, we'll jump into numbers real quick because I think it'll be more clear if I just give you numbers. So, if I buy a house, a lot of people don't know how to buy a property. So, you you go get a real, you get approved for a mortgage. You go talk to a realtor, you find a house. So you buy a house for $100,000. Well, now you have to pay for closing costs and half of the transfer and title. So in Maryland, that's about, we'll say 8%. So that $100,000 house is now $108,000. Okay. So it appraises for, for whatever it needs to appraise for to get it moving along. In 2008, it was over appraising. So what happened with the market crash is everybody was underwater because they were over appraising these assets. But back to the $100,000 house, if we buy it for $108,000, we're going to resell it for say 175,000. Okay. Now that spread, oh, take 175,000, deduct your realtor costs and your also your transfer and title, which is also going to be another uh, 8%. So 175 minus, so 161,000. So the 161,000 to the $108,000 is your spread. If you don't have to do any work to that property, that's how much money you make. But your holding costs, your your utilities, your insurance, your renovation costs, like all that is that middle ground right there. So if you can manage your middle ground and diminish your overhead expenses, then you can make money on the property. Um, a lot of guys just don't know, like, what are my numbers look like? And that's that's really it. You buy the house plus 6%, you lose the house or you sell the house, you know, minus another 8%. I think it's important to note that just because you purchase a house does not mean that that is an asset. Like the house that I live in is not an asset. It's a liability. I have money going out the door every single month. Now it is gaining in value over time for right now, just like the stock market, 
what could happen in 08 could happen again. And then all the equity that I have in my house could go away. So there's a difference between something that's cash flowing and is bringing cash to you every month. And cause, cause in real estate, correct me if I'm wrong, you are going to use that as an asset in three ways. One is tax breaks. Two is equity in the house. And then three is cash flow. If I just yep. own my house and I'm living in it, I'm really only utilizing that equity. Is that right? Yeah. So there's, we'll use the hundred thousand dollar house as a, as a prime example. So that hundred thousand dollar house, you're into it for 108. You can do a lower cost renovation and then make it a rental. And then you have a bunch of equity. Now you have equity. You can pull out a line of credit or a cash out refi and use that money for other investments. We'll say, so I got a buddy of mine in uh, Maryland department, Maryland fire department. He took a $40,000 HELOC out in his house when the market crashed. He threw that money into the, the stock market and made like a hundred and some odd thousand dollars off his $40,000 investment. Now, would I do that? No, I'm not going to, I'm going to hedge my bets. Like, is it a smart move for him because he knows the stock market? Then yeah, but for me, it's not. But for the real estate aspect of it, most people will invest for three reasons, appreciation, depreciation, and cash flow. And let me explain that. So the appreciation is places like Boston, Chicago, uh, DC, New York, San Francisco, where the value of the property goes up very fast and very high. Um, I'll give you an example here in a minute. The other one is the depreciation. So you can write off the expense of a house. You can depreciate it over 27 and a half years. So on a $100,000 house, if you divide it by 27 and a half, $3,636, you can write off against your income. So people who are high earners will buy assets with high depreciation rates so they can write the, that depreciation against their income to pay less taxes. It's just a, one of the strategies that is out there. And for cash flow, it's the same thing. So the $100,000 house, you know, say your mortgage on it's 800 bucks and it'll run out for 1200 bucks. You're making a $400 profit before all of your overhead and expenses. So if you want to give examples of each one, the appreciating value, we'll say there's a neighborhood in DC, it's called Trinidad. Um, Trinidad is where the crack war started back in the eighties. It was a very rough neighborhood. Uh, it was the last neighborhood on the nicer side of the river, we'll say, um, where I thought that it was going to go up in value. Well, me and about a hundred thousand other people saw the same thing. So I found a deal that was uh, $300,000. I think I bid about $75,000 over the asking price because I would still make money on the rentals. This is also like a decade ago. Within 12 hours, there were 17 cash offers over what I had bid, which was 75,000 over. I think I think it sounds like something. Denver right now. Yeah. So what happens was you have people who are very, very wealthy who are gambling with these properties. They're gambling this property will go up over value because they might have insight or insider knowledge of the developments going to happen in DC. So that same property now, we'll say about 10 years later, is probably worth about uh, seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars if they redid it one to one point two. So there's the appreciation place. Same thing for like New York, like these these townhomes that people are living in and like in Brooklyn. Like when I was in Brooklyn when I was a kid, these these townhouses weren't worth anything, but now they're worth like one, two million dollars. And it's 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 mind boggling. So they buy these things with uh with the intent to hold on to it to appreciate in value. And the cash flow, I mean, I'm I like cash flow and appreciation. I like a combination of both. Because if it appreciates in value um, and the market tanks like it did in 08, um, then I still have cash flow going on because rentals 
rarely go down. And if they do, it's not by more than usually five to 10%. It'll just get stagnant. So we live in a, uh, I mean, it's been pretty ridiculous. It's been ridiculous everywhere, but for the last year and definitely the last six months ish, people are getting those cash offers, those $7,500,000 over asking. It can be really intimidating to people who make, you know, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 a year. They're like, how am I going to afford all that stuff? It's like, what kind of techniques would you have to get people in the game? Are you someone who like I bought out of state for my investment property? Is that something that you would, would do get, get into a market that you can afford? Like, what are your kind of, what are your strategies? So I've got, I've got so many moving parts of my, my real estate facets. I just sold a house in West Virginia yesterday and I'm looking at buying um, three duplexes in Delaware, maybe this week. So like the West Virginia property is an hour and a half from me. The Delaware properties are probably two hours from me. Um, is it intimidating? Absolutely. But do you need the people in place who can manage it for you or have friends out there to check in on it? Like I was very lucky to have two friends who have farms out by my West Virginia property that could check on it once in a while. And I have friends in Delaware who either work for the fire department in D.C. Um, or are realtors and property managers out there. So I've got people in place for those projects. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is like there's a lot of programs out there that you can use to buy to get into a house as your primary residence. So like the USDA loans 100 percent on rural areas. You can go on a, a USDA map and pull it up and see where you can get approved for that. I've made a lot of money off of buying properties from USDA years ago. Unfortunately, Maryland doesn't do it anymore. So I just don't, I, I haven't had a chance in probably uh, six, seven years to to pull that trigger. But you can also get, a, if the military, there's military people, they can get a VA loan for 100% financing. There's programs where if it's your primary property, I don't know if they're out there right now, but we can put three and a half percent down and buy a property to get into. You just got to do a cost analysis back to, you know, one of your five pillars of expenses and say, okay, does it make more sense for me to rent for X amount of dollars or buy for X amount of dollars? If I'm buying for X amount of dollars, this is going towards principal to pay down the overhead, the mortgage. And then you got to look at the area you're investing in. Is it a primary market like the major cities like Denver or DC or New York, or is it a secondary market where everybody commutes from that area to your area? Which one's going to get hit harder? You know, what's the demographics? What's the growth look like? What class of neighborhood? Is there uh, anchor chains of stores around you? You know, they say anywhere they're building a hotel is a good place to invest because they've already done the legwork and the market research to see they will need more places to live at or, or stay at for vacations. That's across the country. Gatlinburg is a primary idea where guys, after they burned down Gatlinburg a couple of years ago, um, a lot of investors went down there and bought places up, including hotels, to develop it for because now it's going to be a, a low buy and it's going to appreciate in value and it's a beautiful area. So people are going to go down there. Both Tom and I have some spots in Arizona, which it's not drivable. It's a flight. It takes a bit more infrastructure to have people put in place that can can do what you're saying, which is check in on things and, and make sure things are running appropriately. Um, are there... Oh, say this. Let's get away from, let's get away, let's let you think for a minute. Let's yeah. talk about something else in real estate. So it's a lower buy-in. We're talking about low, if you want to invest, let's do something lower. So say there's a property and that I get or I buy and something happens to me and I can't pay the property taxes on it. Something called tax auctions or tax lien auctions or tax deed auctions. So say Craig has a, or I have a house, I can't pay the taxes on it. The county takes those taxes and goes to auction. Craig says, okay, I'm going to go buy those taxes. I'm going to pay for them. 
I'm going to get a, in this area, it's 21% return on my money every year. So Craig invests, we'll say, you know, three, we'll use round numbers. We'll say $5,000. I have to pay Craig back. Well, I think it's 1.3 or one and a quarter, one and three quarters percent a month or 21% a year until it's either paid off or the house is foreclosed. So I've done, I've done dozens of these tax liens. All of them get paid back at 21% a year, except for one. And I think 99% of tax liens gets paid back whether by the bank or by the owner. Um, the one that didn't get paid back, the, it was a vacant land. The bank paid the tax liens back on the house next to it, but not the land. It was an acre of land. Um, it took two years to foreclose. I was out of pocket like $9,000. And I turned around and sold it on Craigslist in two days for $28,000. But my money wasn't liquid. My money was wrapped up into it. So Maryland is a tax lien state where you get the, the primary lien of the property and you wipe out all the liens below it. All the uh, HOA, the water, the construction liens, all those get wiped away. It comes free and clear. Whereas other places like Pennsylvania is a tax deed state. So you go to auction, you buy the deed for this property at one of these auctions, but there's still all the liens on it too, which could be your taxes, your HOA, your construction, whatever else. So that's a lower way to invest in real estate is going into to, to tax liens or tax deed auctions. And, and you, had your, you had your loss. And I know that in Colorado, I think they do like one a year, but in Indiana, they do them like once a month. So each state seems to be kind of play by their own rules. Every jurisdiction in every county is going to be a little bit different. Um, well, so it's based on counties, not states. Every county is in charge of their own. Every state has a, a rule of which it's going to be a lien or deed. So the state dictates lien or deed and the county decides when the, the auctions will be. Like I know one county in Maryland, they do it every two to three years. I know a couple counties in Delaware and Maryland where they skipped this year because of COVID. Um, so they're going to have potentially double the number next year. Now, how that plays out with, with everything else going on, I have no idea. Maybe they'll give them more time. Maybe they won't, but that'd be against the law. But the foreclosure process here takes two years, whereas other places it takes three months. What are some of like the biggest bonehead mistakes you've seen or maybe you've made? Uh, I know you talked about paying too much for, for one of your properties, but it ended up working out for you. Some, some big pitfalls that people can fall into starting out. The biggest thing I see with guys have issues is the ones who partner with somebody without defined parameters of what each one's required or supposed to do. Because my work ethic and my passion and my drive might not match somebody else I partner with. So I held them to the expectations of what I think they should do, and they don't see it the same way. So everybody's obviously different for their motivations and their, and their drive and their work ethic. So make sure you highlight what everybody's responsibilities would be. And that's just, I mean, that goes across the lines to the fire department, the police department, everything else. Like you need to know what, their, what somebody's qualifications are, what their capabilities are. Because if they come up short, then you're doing two man's jobs and then you get frustrated with them, which causes a rift in the uh, in the relationship and the partnership. I mean, it could be we could be talking about our, our wives at that point. What uh, books, podcasts, YouTube channels, like where do people start? What did you get into anything? Did you like following certain people? So this none of this, like the podcast and stuff existed when I started doing investing now with Josh Dorkin, when he started bigger podcast and then Brandon took it over, I think that is the most valuable information you can get is biggerpockets.com. They're the kind of people they just want to help. They don't want any payment in return. They will get reimbursed somehow, 
whether it be invited into deals or whatever. But again, they're doing it for the right reasons, not because they need to or want to. They're just doing it to help people. So they have a wealth of information across the board and it can be a very overwhelming amount of information. So you need to figure out which facet of real estate or investing in general you need you want to get into. Because if you shotgun blast ideas, like you're going to overwhelm yourself. Uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is like an all-time favorite for all real estate investors. Uh, Millionaire Next Door, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. There's a whole bunch of different books out there that are, are good motivators. You can listen to people like Gary Vee. You can listen to um, what are the other TikTok populars right now. I don't know about um, TikTok. I like Ken McElroy, Robert I like Kiyosaki. Him. But each one has a different viewpoint of how to yeah. invest though. Yeah, absolutely. And two things from what you said. First of all, Bigger Pockets also has some awesome calculators that yeah. uh, just kind of help you analyze deals, which seems to be like the biggest, at least the hardest part for me. In this real estate space, there are so many people who just want to help you get along. It seems kind of rare to me. I know that when I got into the fire service, it seemed like this famine mentality of every time you went to a test, it felt like you were just battling against the other thousand people in the room and you didn't want to give them information. You just wanted to keep it all for yourself because you wanted the job. And it seems like the investing game is the exact opposite. I have not come across anyone who has tried to like keep things secret. Have you, have you found the same thing? I found a mix, but it kind of depends on where you're dabbling at and who you talk to. You know, some people see you as competition. Other people see you as a network. Like I talked to a lady last night about investing in Annapolis and gave her information that she didn't know about. Um, and I didn't do it for any reason other than I want to help somebody out. But that might also go back to our background of our careers as virtually just helping people. It kind of depends on who you talk to. I'm a, I'll consider myself a smaller fish um, and I run with a lot of bigger fish. So I love hearing my friends' stories and they scale up massively. Like there's a couple of guys who are, you know, buying, you know, blocks of warehouses and apartment buildings. And I'm like, good for you. Like I'm your biggest cheerleader, bro. I have no desire to do it. Like again, it goes back to this is still fun for me. I want to keep it fun. Once it becomes a business, it's not fun anymore. I do treat it like a business. Like all, all my books and my numbers are, are business oriented. I got another friend of mine who runs a hard money banking company. Uh, my buddy Jason out of Columbia, Maryland. And are these he's firefighters like, too? Or Jason's not. Jason I grew up with. I was a year behind him in high school and his brother's a year behind me. But he's like, dude, you're too involved in your properties. And I'm like, I like being involved. Like I like being part of, I like swinging a hammer. Like I have all my own tools. I can do virtually anything for building a house. But like shout out to Dan and uh, Dan Matthew and Ian Horowitz up in Baltimore. Like we all started investing about the same time. And those guys are absolutely killing it. You know, they've got a multi, a massive multifamily in uh, West Virginia. They bought the same time I bought my little farmette in West Virginia. You know, they bought a warehouse district up in Baltimore about the same time. And like those guys scaled up massively and they're smart. Like we, a lot of people look at firefighters and they're kind of like, man, firefighter, you know, you know, dumb blue collar dude. And then some of these guys are, are, are sharp. Talk to me a bit about section eight, just because it seems like in this space, you kind of need to pick a niche. I could be wrong here, but it's either single family short-term rentals or traditionals, or I'm going to get into commercial and storage and trailer homes, like, and then just kind of run with that. Cause you kind of said the shotgun approach doesn't really work all that well. Seems like section eight's its own little niche. Can you like talk about how you even get started or, or what the process right. of that is? So come down this rabbit hole with me. There's three I things it. I want to, <laughs> there's three things I want to invest in in my life. I want to own a lighthouse. 
I want to own a castle and I want white waterfront property. I have my waterfront property. I got two houses in the water um, that are fantastic rentals. I've been on a bunch of lighthouses and I've been on castles before. You've been um, on lighthouses? Yeah, the like government sells off lighthouses. Every year, the government sells off lighthouses. It might be in Michigan, it might be in New York, it might be in Connecticut. And offline, I'll send you guys the link so you can take a look at it. But if I was like, "Hey guys, you want to come fishing at my lighthouse this weekend?" What are you going to say? Yeah, Absolutely. of course I yeah, am, let's, Aaron. Let's go hang out at the lighthouse. <laughs> just the experience. Um, I just think it's a really cool item where you can make it an Airbnb or a fishing getaway. There's one off the coast of North Carolina that's a uh, it's called the Frying Pan. Um, where it's privately owned and they have, I think they were charging at $1.500 per person per night to go out there. How much does um, a lighthouse well, cost? Anywhere from $16,000 to over a million. It just depends on the lighthouse. There's one for sale right now in Connecticut. I think it's uh, a half a mile offshore, but it's, it's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a shore lighthouse. Um, but yeah, that, the, you have to have comes kind of goals. And Castle's the same thing. Like I've, I just got engaged. I got engaged a couple of years ago when I was in Ireland. My mom's side's from Scotland, and I spent some time over there. On both of them, I drove around the countries. And you can go buy a castle for less than what you can buy a condo for in D.C. or New York or San Francisco. Jeez. Like you can go buy a castle for on the low end, probably five six hundred thousand dollars in one of the UKs. Uh, if you go over to uh, former Soviet areas, you can probably buy a castle for three four hundred thousand dollars. You get a mo with uh, that castle. Uh, there's one right now with a moat, actually. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to build a drawbridge. But, like, you have to have goals. Like, and I like I know going into it, like, is it realistic for me to buy those? Like, eh, I mean, it might be a stretch, but it's a possibility. I wouldn't say it's a realist, uh, realistic view, but it's a possibility. It just depends on what, you, what you're willing to risk, which goes into, like, your Section 8 rentals. So your Section 8 rentals, they get a really bad rap, right? So... They're like, okay, the government pays. The way the Section 8 works or a housing voucher program works is the government gives you a set amount of, of money. Usually it's based upon your either um, zip code or your neighborhood, um, and it's a dollar amount per per bed and bat, or per, per bedroom. So in D.C., when you look at their voucher uh, Section 8 or housing voucher program, if you have this many bedrooms um, in this neighborhood, this is what they will pay you, firm. In Maryland... Well, in, my, in, in specific counties, we'll say in PG County where I'm at right now, um, they're like, okay, this is a suggested price. So then you, How do you do find the out what that is. Just investment. Google the jurisdiction and then look up housing voucher housing voucher payment standards or Section Eight payment standards for whatever jurisdiction it's in. In Montgomery County, which is just north of, of DC, I think if you're married um, and you make $140,000, you actually qualify to be in a Section Eight house which is mind boggling. Yeah. So you might get some good tenants, but you might get some people who just don't care who are terrible people. Same thing for retail investors, retail renters. You get somebody off of Craigslist, Zillow, hot pads, you know, through a realtor, you don't know what kind of person they are. So you, what you do is you try to minimize and hedge your potential losses by interviewing them, seeing what they look like, looking at their social media, um, looking at the background of their pictures, what they have going on, you know, bringing paperwork to the place they live and giving them the paperwork by hand to see what kind of quality of house they live or the, the quality of life they, they're living in. You can't deny them based on, you know, your, your race, religion, ethnicity, whatever else. Like you just need to see who you're getting in bed with. Um, so you need to hedge your bets. So Section 8, I think we talked about this earlier, is Section 8, the average Section 8 person stays for approximately 11 years. The average retail renter stays for one to three years, whether it be a house or a condo. And that goes into microeconomics. Like it's broken down further than that, but just for round numbers and dates, that's what you need to know. So you're going to be like stuck have, with this problem for 
either. No, you can you can end their contract after a year if you want to. Okay. And if you, and if you go, so the biggest thing, and I was talking to an investor on Delaware before we got this on this call, and uh, we were talking about Delaware, and he's like, the biggest thing out here is you need to do quality or uh, uh, checks in the property every three to six months to see what condition the property is in. Because there are a lot of renters, and it doesn't matter if they're Section 8 or retail, a lot of people in general, they don't care because it's not theirs. So the biggest thing, like paint, drywall, and all that stuff, like that, yeah, that can be messed up, and it kind of sucks. But once they start breaking cabinetries and a water's been leaking for four months or the basin's been underwater for four months, they don't say anything, now it becomes a structural issue. And the structural issues cost big money. So you have the lipstick on a pig problem, or you have structural problems or two different animals. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the HUD homes and Good Neighbor Next Door program, because that's something that I've heard over the years and I've researched myself. I never actually participated in the program, uh, just wasn't eligible because, you know, it's a first time home buyer thing. But I'm wondering if you ever did that or you know of somebody who did that. And for listeners who don't know about it, it's for police, fire, teachers, as long as they buy a home in a certain area uh, where they work that is deemed like a revitalization area, they can essentially buy this property for what I think is already a decent price, but after a few years, then half the mortgage note gets forgiven. So it's a a huge benefit, at least it seems like it, for anybody that's getting into the housing market, they can realize 50% appreciation. What do you know about it? Like, what's your opinion about it? Do you know anybody who's done it? Uh, Never done it. Looked into it a whole lot. Um, I know some people who have done it. So we'll start with the area. So they usually put, like you say, a revitalization area um, where they expect or they're trying to turn the area into a nicer property. The guys who I know who have done it in D.C. specifically, D.C. and PG County in Maryland, they bought it at a very low price. They have to stay there for you know a certain amount of time, whether it be, I think it's two or five years, and then everything is, you know, 50% is written off or whatever the number is. Usually the houses need some work. You can get a 203K loan for those to do uh get your renovation costs wrapped up into them. What's uh, a 203K you, loan? It's a rehab loan. So it's a FHA is FHA loan is usually it's turnkey property, but a FHA 203K loan is where the, the renovations are wrapped up into the loan. They'll give you a loan for the renovations based upon the contract, a general contractor or contractor's uh, breakdown. There's a lot of legwork into it. You have to get a contractor out there it gives you prices for everything. You submit that to FHA uh, with your loan docs, and they'll give you a loan for that amount. And it has to be done in a certain amount of time. It's a good program for fixer-uppers. There's just a lot of moving parts. I've never done it because it doesn't make sense for how I do things, but I know guys who have. For the neighbor next door thing, though, the good neighbor next door thing, so one of the things a lot of guys don't realize is that we'll, we'll talk about D.C. just because I know D.C. If you build 10 or more units, I think 20% of them have to be either Section 8 low income or other. So what a lot of these apartment buildings are doing is they'll advertise to police, fire, nurses, if you make below this, we'll give you a discounted rate just so they don't have to have Section 8 or lower income renters in there. Um, it's just a way around it. Or they'll build a nine unit and below to avoid having the government tell them who, who can live at their properties. Now, the same thing goes for in certain areas for new builds for like condos instead of apartments, whereas they can come in and say, okay, you know, these amount of apartment or condos have to be sold to lower income. How do you avoid that? You offer the same program to a lower income producing cop, firefighter, nurse, somebody who they, who they 
uh, deem as a, a more quality tenant, which not is not always necessarily true. Yeah, I work with a bunch of savages. I <laughs> I wouldn't rent them any of my houses. Um, yeah, like before we got on here, we were talking about like I had a, a marine living at one of my properties, and there was footprints on the wall, like climbing up into the attic rather than go getting a ladder. Like he decided to Spider Man up in the attic um, and put some dents in the wall, and then. There was an issue. I guess one of the doors was sticking, and instead of hey, the door is sticking, or making an adjustment on the hinges, he decided just to kick the door open. So the bathroom door was busted. I'm like, like bro, like this is easy fixes. Like you just cost yourself, you know, three four hundred dollars to have a door to have somebody come install it and paint it. What would you say to the people who are like, oh, I'm out on all real estate because I don't want to have to deal with all that stuff. So you, it's just it's like any other job. Like you have small fires you got to put out. Like. Can a house burn down and and be deemed uninhabitable? Like, yeah, does it happen very often? Very, very few and far between. So owning real estate is just like owning a business and you have to treat it as such. You have a lot of small fires to put out and deal with. And you just gotta manage who you who your who your who your clientele is gonna be. So I'm not gonna say don't get into real estate, but if you're not willing to do a little bit of legwork here and there, then it's not for you. Like I know guys who are doing short-term rentals. You can buy a house for more money if it's going to be a short-term rental because you're making a higher cash flow. So some guys like they only focus on section eight. Some guys only focus on short-term rentals. Some are only uh, retail uh, renters. So you just got to know the animal you're getting in bed with. Like I keep saying, I'm looking at short-term rentals in section eight right now because of the eviction moratorium, primarily because they extended it. This is the third time they extended it to October 3rd. So if they extend it one more time, now you're getting into winter time. In this area, you cannot evict somebody if there's precipitation 24 hours before or after the eviction date, or it's going to be below freezing 24 hours before or after the eviction date. So if they push this eviction moratorium into the winter time, and that's a say that that'll be a rule for most of the Northeast, um, now these people get to stay until say springtime. So how do you hedge your your potential losses? For me, it'd be short-term rentals or Section 8. Section 8 is guaranteed income coming in from the government. Um, and short-term rentals are not staying long enough to claim squatters rights. There are people out there who will, who will rent a place for 29 days and ask for one more night because at that 30 night mark, now you have squatters rights in some jurisdictions, some States. So that's been an issue I've seen pop up a couple of times. I don't think it's, it's prevalent. I think it's just something that's happening. Same thing for commercial or uh, yeah, not commercial corporate housing rentals. They're doing basically short-term rentals. So if like my house burns down, I call the insurance company. The insurance company puts me up into a short-term rental housing scenario for like three, six, nine months, something like that. And they're usually, that's another strategy you can use to buy rentals is get into uh, corporate housing. There's also programs like if somebody gets out of jail, like you can have housing for them. You have assisted living. There's housing for them. There's so many. This is why I say shotgun blast because you can go down this rabbit hole and have all these different things you can you can invest in. Like you can buy a halfway house and the government pays you money. You can get assisted living and have insurance pay you. You can go to corporate housing and get uh, insurance, corporate, uh, short-term nurses, uh, doctors. There's so many moving parts to real estate. It's not just one one answer. So for we'll say Annapolis because I know Annapolis because I just looked at this. Um, I called Annapolis Corporate Housing and asked them what they're charging. They said for the a, a decent, we'll say B-class neighborhood – they're getting one and a half to two times the rent per month for a three, six or a nine month rental. So they're getting on a uh, three or four hundred thousand dollar house. They're getting, you know, between thirty five hundred and forty five hundred dollars a month in rent. 
the market rent will be about 2,000 to 2,500 bucks. So round numbers will say one and a half to two, two times the normal rent because it's a short-term rent, but they're also coming furnished. So you have to have that as an overhead for a short-term rental. And I know from experience going through that right now, that is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, we'll, we'll find out here in a month if it's worth it or not. Where is it? Down in Tucson. Tucson, Arizona. Yep. I, I got a good buddy of mine down there. I absolutely fell in love with uh, with that town. So I think we're, you know, probably the next the next one will probably be down there too. To be honest with you, uh, it's pretty, Tucson, pretty Scottsdale, nice Mesa, all those areas are are blowing up right now. The Tom I just had a Gilbert. Gilbert, okay. Next time you guys are out there, climb Camelback Mountain and uh, let me know how how it goes. Is that one we did? We did that. We ran up that. Did you? Yeah. Oh, now you're showing off. You high altitude guys are always showing off. <laughs> I was pretty unhappy when I got to the top. That's a rough run. I did it with my uh, my my cousin. We did it a couple of years ago, and I was like, "Where did all the oxygen go?" Jesus. I tell you what, going up that thing, all I could think about was if I roll my ankle or get jacked up up here, like who's coming to get me? Because it is sketchy. That's the thing about firefighters is like when you're in a bad predicament, like I feel really bad if I have to call guys out to come save my butt. Well, especially when you know the guys and you're like, oh man, (laughs) I don't want to get hurt up here. (laughs) So how can people uh, reach out to you, find out more about first responders getting into uh, real estate? So I'm the, uh, I'm one of the admins. Mike Webb started first responder financial freedom. Um, Me and Tyler are the admins and we just added two more people. Uh, Terrence and Elizabeth on as moderators. I overpost that page. I also admin DC Fire Department's one and a couple other ones. First Responder Financial Freedom is going to be the best place to get information from the stuff I post. And the reason I'm overposting is to keep it relevant and keep it interesting and try to get people engaged. Otherwise, the Facebook algorithms are going to you know kick it to the back curb. What I think is really cool about your page is there are like these little splinter groups that that seem to pop up where someone will post something about short-term rentals. And if that's something that you're into, you can get involved with those people. So it seems like you and the other admins of that group are creating like a, uh, almost like a, a bit of a marketplace for, for people to, to connect, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So that's the whole goal is to kind of give guys another avenue to learn about other investments. Like I would like to post about stock on there, but I'm just one of those stupid apes who invested in AMC. I'm just waiting for like the world to turn. Uh, um, <laughs> I think you're doing for a while, man. <laughs> Thanks, two of us. But I mean, at the same time, like if there's somebody who want to come on there and teach about stocks or give insight, then by all means, like I would love to have more people engage um, other assets and other ways to invest money for passive income. Mine just happens to be real estate. Like that's what I, I like getting my hands dirty in. So anybody who wants to come get their hands dirty and uh, learn about this stuff, like join the group. I'll probably be on there today posting some stupid stuff just to get people to think like I'm a big proponent of I'll help somebody who's willing to help themselves, but I'm not going to force you to drink the water. Uh, once we get to the watering hole, there's a, like a, there's a Philly cop I'm helping right now. Tommy, he's got, you know, a thousand questions, which is the same thing I did, but he bought his first uh, short-term rental out in Delaware where I'm looking at. And uh, we, we, I mean, we were talking back and forth. He stopped by those properties today. Look at them for me that I'm looking at just to give me insight. So like you can build a great relationship and, if you have a friendship or relationship with somebody, it's going to go further and faster to um, gain knowledge and experience than it is by reading about it. So if you have somebody you can just bounce ideas on, that group is perfect for it. That's the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm motivated to help guys out is reading a book about something and looking at something on YouTube or whatever. Like you can learn a little bit, but 
until you have somebody that that's willing and happy to help you out, then you're, you're not going to gain a whole lot of traction. But you, you need help. You need mentors, you need people to, to help show you the way. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. What I want people to get out of this podcast is have something else, have something else that if something were to happen to you at work, like you, like you say, hedge your bets, there's a good chance we're going to make it through this career. We're going to be able to retire. We're going to get a little pension, but set yourself up now for later down the road. And I wish I would have done this, you know, a long time ago, but my, my future self will hopefully thank me. Aaron, you got anything else, buddy? No, just, uh, be motivated, be open to having people help you out and be willing to, to ask questions and ask for help because nobody knows, like even I don't know, um, a lot about real estate. And so I have to ask some of the, the bigger fish that I swim with because, uh, you're never going to know everything. You just have to be willing to pull the trigger and, and minimize the risk that you're taking on any, anything you do. And that could be your job or it could be your investments or it could be your, your home life. You just want to minimize the risk you take and have the best life you can. It's awesome, Aaron. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. I had a good time.